Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Cameron Guerra. Will, mm-hmm. it is Pumpkin Patch Saturday. Oh, yeah. Yes, it is a sacred tradition that scheduling gods bless us with. I think every year, but I only pick up on it in certain years. This is definitely a pumpkin patch Saturday year. And let me explain what that means, because I fear that some might have assumed that me saying that means, oh, I don't have to watch any football this weekend. No, 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 no. Hmm. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what pumpkin patch Saturday is all about. If you're one of those people that maybe, you know, you don't get pumpkins too early because you realize that squirrels are going to eat them. And then you're actually going to be without pumpkins like a week or two before Halloween. And that kind of defeats the purpose. This Saturday sets up perfectly for you. Mm -hmm. The noon slate in the SEC is one game. It's one game. And it's... Which game is it, Connor? It is UT Martin, Tennessee. And if that game is close, you'll know about it. All right. If you You are gambling on that game... Hate to say seek help, but go to a pumpkin patch instead. <laughs> go to, go, yeah, go take a walk. Uh, what's what, what's what do you always say? Go touch grass. That's, go touch grass. This is a touch grass prime opportunity at that noon slate. Touch some pumpkins. Touch all the pumpkins for, for mm-hmm. all I care. Doesn't matter to me. Pick yourself out some great pumpkins. This is a, a good day to be able to do that because you have a chance to go out, do some basic fall activities, get yourself a PSL if that's your thing. If it's not, go get yourself some black coffee and pretend it's a PSL. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. But do that once college game day ends and you've got that window, 12 Eastern to 3.30. That's your time. That is mm-hmm. time that you got to take advantage of. You got to do those things that from a family perspective, you know, we, we all know that there's a give and take during the college football season. That's the way that it works in most households that are probably listening to this podcast. This, this is your give. All right. This is your give. This is your window to be able to give right now. And then you're back home, 330 slate, some two, I think, well, at least one intriguing game. And then one, uh, it's Vandy and Mizzou. So we'll take that for what it is. But there is one intriguing storyline that we will get to for that game. Pumpkin mm-hmm. Patch Saturday. You're welcome. It's there. It's a thing. This Saturday, I'm visiting my my aunt Hilda, who is a real person, very sweet Cajun lady, and so we're going to be able of course to. She is. I'm going to be able to hang out with her for hours, do some puzzles, reminisce about the good old days, Ooh. and then the LSU clicks at three thirty. So this perfectly lines up for me because I'm like, hey, I got to watch that. So, <laughs> Pumpkin Patch Saturday slash Aunt Hilda Saturday. Mm-hmm. Shout these, out Aunt Hilda. These things are two of the same. <laughs> We've got a great show lined up. Feinbaum's going to join us in a little bit here. Lots to, to talk about. Tennessee, Alabama storylines. He's got some great stories sprinkled in there, as usual. We've got Bold and Brash, second half of 2022, and Lad of the Week. Obviously, we've got four games to break down. But first, our friends at Texas Pete, you know that they have the spice and flavor that's kicking this football season up a notch. If you haven't tried the original hot sauce or their new traditional barbecue sauce, run, don't walk, grab yourself a bottle today. Visit texaspeat.com for recipes and hot apparel, plus take 20% off your entire order with promo code Saturday Down South. That is all one word, Saturday Down South. Win big with Texas Pete when you sauce like you mean it. Let's start with the biggest game of the day in the SEC. That is number seven, Ole Miss, traveling to Death Valley. LSU is a one-and-a-half-point favorite for this one. The over-under I have, 271 Ole Miss rushing yards. It's a lot. A whole lot. Man, is it? <laughs> yeah. That's what they're averaging, though. 
That is the season average, number one among non-service academies. But I think we should perhaps start to include Ole Miss as a service academy because when you average 47 rushing attempts per game, that's just what you are. And you actively hate your quarterback. (laughs) Yeah. And you tell your quarterback, hey, um, you know what? You just need to sit this one out. We're going to – those RPOs, all right, you're handing the football off, okay? Ain't no option in there, son. Yeah, we we know we know what's about to happen here. The difference between Ole Miss and an actual service academy is that if a team has a glaring weakness on the back end, like let's say Vandy, Lane, Charlie Weiss Jr., they can make that adjustment. They can let Jackson Dart go into a store at the mall by himself, which uh, I guess is equivalent to actually letting him go through his progressions. Um, But I always say against the defenses that have guys in position to make plays, you can't be one dimensional. Well, Matt house confirmed knows what he's doing, right? Multiple as coach. O would say, yes, yes. You'd be multiple. Uh, The the coach O imitation. I mean, Marler did the coach O imitation on a weekly basis. I'm not at any point in my life where that's going to come back to me. That's gone. Mm -hmm. It's, any any chance I had at, at, at getting somewhat decent to that is has long since faded. Madhouse does know what he's doing. LSU mm-hmm. number twenty four in the country against the pass and Hennon Hooker he got going. It still wasn't his most efficient day if you kind of look back on it. Robbie Ashford got going early in that game, but I think for the most part you could argue that LSU's pass defense has not been a liability in the back end the way that it was last year or the last mm-hmm. two years really. Will mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. But it feels like you no longer have LSU allowing these chunk plays wherein guys are running wide open because of busts in the secondary. It's like a, a you know, Hendon Hooker dropping it in a bucket or something like that. It's not, oh my, that's a walk-in touchdown. Yes, no, I fully agree with that. And there are definitely some long plays LSU has given up, to your point. But like so so we talked about it last week with Anthony Richardson, where he like had a beautiful throw, just beat a guy one on one, you know, the Perfect NFL, throw. that's a touchdown. You know what I'm saying? And then same thing with Hinden. It's like, hey, that's Hinden Hooker. He just put up, you know, half a hundred on Alabama. So if you're gonna stop that guy, I don't know what to tell you if you think you're LSU. So yeah, no, to your point, the way that they've beaten this LSU, the teams have beaten this LSU defense is kind of in the middle through like two and three yards at a time. Yeah, it, it's definitely been more of a grind and not mm-hmm. as much those big chunk plays where wherein it just looks like your your team is a it is a total disaster who hasn't bought in or there's the the miscommunications, those those different things. Mm-hmm. And that's significant because at some point in this game, Lane is gonna need Jackson Dart to step up and make a big time throw. Mm-hmm. Multiple instances in this game in which I expect that to to be needed from the Ole Miss side. We know that LSU has guys who can harass the quarterback between Ojolari, the emerging Harold Perkins, Greg Brooks coming in from the secondary. We know that the hit that he had on Hendon Hooker, that's going to be on film, of course. And I wonder if on the road, we finally see those mistakes really hurt Ole Miss in some key spots. Because ideally for, for them, this is all still about the running game and Judkins and Evans. They fuel the offense. I don't think LSU, though, has been a total doormat against the run. One other thing. Was Florida a turn-the-corner game for the LSU passing attack? We don't know. Boy, I hope so. I've been hoping for that game all season, Connor. Yes, and you finally got it. You finally got exactly what you could have hoped for this offseason when we talked about how great these LSU receivers are and what it will look like if Jaden Daniels takes that next step. If it was a turn-the-corner game 
And LSU is playing like a team with nothing to lose because they don't have a coach on the hot seat. It's not bad vibes galore like it was the last two years. And they're not competing for a playoff spot because they have that, that proverbial second loss. Then that's super dangerous, I think. That is. I should probably mention this. I want to get ahead of this take. LSU has one SEC loss. It was a crossover game, Tennessee. Ole Miss, of course, doesn't have any losses. Technically, mm-hmm. both of these teams control their own destiny in the West because neither of them has played Alabama yet. You always control your own destiny until you play Alabama. God, your destiny yes. is no longer yours. True. I'm just I'm throwing this out there. I, I, I don't. I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but it's something worth remembering. Mm-hmm. Fellas, he wins this game. Suddenly, Tigers will host Bama after the bye. They'll have a shot to overtake Bama in the West with just two SEC games after that, in which they could be favored in both of them because they're against Arkansas and AM, who have been a bit up and down this year. I think we can safely say that. Mm-hmm. There's a scenario that I bet you know very few people are are talking about. And you know what? Understandably so, because this is a really difficult game for LSU. And whoever wins this game, you feel like they'll have earned it. This will be considered a quality win. We're getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm I'm acknowledging that. I'm not saying that I'm all of a sudden predicting LSU is going to finish the regular season in Atlanta. I'm not saying that they're going to beat Bama. I'm just saying if you have that kind of mojo going into the Bama game, considering what we were talking about LSU being coming off of the Tennessee game, wherein they got the doors kicked in, Mm -hmm. that's not bad for Brian Kelly at a very critical juncture of the year. So this is a pivotal game in that regard because for two weeks then, you get to set that up. You get to set that up and feel like you're playing a meaningful game against Alabama. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing to have. And it's a meaningful game at home against Alabama, might I add. So I'm just yeah. saying, again, that's getting ahead of ourselves. I'm acknowledging that for all I know, Ole Miss is going to come out and win this football game. I have gone back and forth on this all week, which means I'm hedging on this one. I am. I'm admitting I'm hedging. LSU wins. Ole Miss covers plus one and a half, which is a wild thing to predict for me, basically saying this is going to be a one point victory for LSU um, because this over under is 66 and a half. (laughs) That's wild. I'm basically saying uh, 35, 34, something like that happens in this one. Yeah, I think um, I'm super duper interested by this game, Connor. And this is a game that, like, when we did the predictions, kind of in the in the off season, we were both like, "Yeah, Ole Miss should probably beat LSU." Um, but the way that these two teams have kind of progressed over the year, which is I understand, hilarious, considering that Ole Miss is undefeated in the top ten. Um, like, we're both in the same situation where it's like, okay, like we respect what Ole Miss has done. The win against Kentucky was obviously impressive and all that different stuff, but. To your point, you've seen the teams that have made LSU look bad, and it's teams that can get the ball down the field, can capitalize on mistakes, and I I think I'm starting to feel good about this game, and and I would ask if you thought I was crazy, but I think we're kind of in the same place, that it's going to be a close game, and that hopefully kind of like the fourth quarter magic that LSU has uh, kind of hopefully guides them, especially at home. Um, yeah, I think to your point, it's not necessarily getting ahead of yourself because now that Mississippi State, you know, has that the loss to Kentucky, I think this is pretty clearly the battle for the second place in the West. You know what I'm saying? Because LSU obviously already beat Mississippi State. Correct. That would be yeah. your only other. And Arkansas is doing their own 
they're playing like side quests right now. I don't know what Arkansas is. They will return to the SEC. Maybe they'll capitalize off of uh, that great quarterback performance, but we just still don't know. You know, so point being, I think that that's just uh, until until everyone plays Bama. I'm not saying either of these teams could or will beat Bama, but you're playing for second place is kind of what I'm saying. So, yeah, I, I think, it, like I said, it's been great quarterback performances. And the one thing that you feel the best about as an LSU fan is the D-line. And if it's a team that needs to run the football to be successful, you talked about the service academy thing. You talked about, you know, if, if, you know, we're not going to see Hendon Hooker or Anthony Richardson out here, like making all these plays. Now, if Jackson Dart comes out and throws for 300 yards and three touchdowns, yeah. you know, like for sure, like good for him. But I just know that, L- that what Ole Miss wants to do from a game planning standpoint and what LSU is good at stopping from a game planning standpoint is going to line up. Now to that point, on the other side of it, you got the um, the Partridge defense that we talked about. They've been a little bit up and down. We gave them a lot of credit after Kentucky, and then they showed against Vandy and Auburn. Um, so hopefully, hopefully, you know, it's between the ears of Jaden Daniels and in the play sheet of Mike Denbach. There's no external factors causing this LSU offense to struggle. So hopefully, you know what I'm saying, they can at least be average because as football fans, nobody likes watching LSU play offense. It's not fun. No, it's 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 mostly not, and yeah. with the exception of last week, where exactly. it, it was fun. And I wonder if there is when you know when you were a kid, and maybe I, I dealt with this probably because you know I have I think pretty normal fears, but sometimes they come up. But I would have this fear of you know going off the high dive, right? Mm-hmm. Or just going off the diving board in general when I was a kid because one of the best swimmer in the world. I was one of those kids that cried my way through swim lessons when I was in kindergarten, whatever. I wasn't an alpha just yet. Still not an just alpha yet. at age 32. In yeah. development. Yeah. Uh, did swimming lessons and I think I was in like second grade or third grade. I was late to ride a bike, late to be able to learn how to swim, whatever. I was a bit slower. Um, we got those things figured out for the most part. But mm-hmm. I was the kid that I couldn't go on the diving board until I did. And what I mean by that is when you go off that diving board, you realize, oh, this actually isn't so scary. I'm not going to drown. I'm going to be okay. I wonder how much of that we see with Jaden Daniels. Oh, (laughs) I can throw to these receivers in one-on-one coverage. They'll make plays. I can keep my head up. I don't have to worry about that edge rusher. And oh, I I can actually operate this offense the way that Brian Kelly and Mike Denbrock want me to. What a concept. Maybe I can go off the high dive. Maybe there is some of that in this game that we see from him. Or alternatively, he regresses. And he goes back to the guy who, uh, quite frankly, couldn't throw a pass against Auburn. Mm -hmm. Couldn't really throw a pass at key points of that game against Mississippi State. Figured Mm -hmm. things out late. But I wonder. One key pass in that game. And luckily, that was all he needed. (laughs) He threw threw a few in the fourth quarter. I think, again, they they kept having those those out routes to Malik Neighbors that were just wide Mm -hmm. open. And he's like, oh, this, all right, this kind of works. I feel like I got something here. But I think that that there is we're, we're going to play the results with that and we're going to play the results with Ole Miss because an Ole Miss team that is now being ranked behind Alabama, who has a loss, mm-hmm. there is still that skepticism that, hmm, how good is this team? Because we know their limitations and we keep talking about it. But if you win a game on the road like this, it changes the dialogue. It absolutely does. You can win a road game at Vandy. You can win a road game at Georgia Tech. Nobody's really going to give you credit for that. Of course. Why would we? You can win a home game against Kentucky. All right. That's a good win. That's a good win. People that watch the SEC will give you credit. But naturally speaking, this is a big game for Ole Miss. 330 CBS. You need to be able to capitalize on this if you're Ole Miss. And I think they come up just short 
in this one. And LSU is more like the team that we saw against Florida than maybe the team that we saw against Tennessee. Give you all one more key. Our boy, Mason Taylor, had one catch in that Florida game. Mm. <laughs> so if you start to see when Jaden panics, he just stares at Mason Taylor. <laughs> if you start to see him start, like if we start seeing those receptions get up in that five to eight base the ratio, <laughs> it's no, it's over. Like yeah. Ole Miss is whooping LSU. So if you start to see him actually use Mason Taylor in the offense to block or to set things up and do picks, that's good. If you see him hitting him on crossers constantly, you can literally as an Ole Miss fan start to, you know, put your little worries to bed. LSU's offense is not showing up today. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we had a pretty high scoring game, relatively high scoring game. At least that's, that's what I hope for in this one, but should be a very, very good matchup in Death Valley. Mm-hmm. Vandy and Mizzou, the game everybody's been waiting for, the game everybody's had marked on their calendar for a oh, very yes. long time. Mizzou's a 14 point favorite. The over under I have 0.5 AJ Swan interceptions. I'm going to give the true freshman Vandy quarterback some love because Vandy, oh, yeah. got, Vandy fans love this guy. They absolutely do. I told you about how they harassed me for ranking Robbie Ash, or I think I had <laughs> at the time it was TJ Finley ahead of him. And they're mm-hmm. like, how dare you be able do something like that? 133 pass attempts. None of them have gone to the other team. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Vandy not is not terrible on offense. They're averaging 28 points a game. They could put up some points in this game against an improved Mizzou defense. I like Mike Wright, but I don't like Clark Lee utilizing a two-quarterback system when Swan is clearly the future and he needs to be getting all the reps. Wright could make the future like Braxton Miller, John Rice Plumley switch to receiver this offseason because we know that he is dynamic with, with the ball in his hands and in space. Mm-hmm. By the way, John Rice Plumley, last week, Thursday night game. Seven total touchdowns. <laughs> Seven. Yeah. I miss that, man. I do. Mm-hmm. I really do. And for those of you saying, oh, you're in Orlando. You can just go watch them anytime. Ah, not as simple as that. It's like four. Oviedo is like 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And then when they play those, those early games, you got to go all the way across town. Anybody that's ever been driving down 436 during rush hour, you're like, what am I doing? What am I Connor's got to, you know, got to weigh the bowling league versus the UCF Thursday kickoff. And that's where they lose them. I know. <laughs> I actually haven't bowled in forever. I haven't. Which You got to get out there, man. Keep it loose. I know. I'm so confident in my abilities that I could just snap my fingers, bowl 200, my first game back. Just no big deal. Not to brag or anything. You're I like Nevis, bro. I, you know what? Thank you. <laughs> that is the nicest thing you could have said to me. I might miss that 26-yarder down the pipe to win a game, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to have the game of my life. That's just mm-hmm. what we do. Um, as for this game, what are we talking about again? We have Vandy Mizzou. Yes. Um, I'm going to say something that sounds like a knee-jerk reaction, and I really do not do this often. I'm not that guy. If Drink loses this game, I think he's gone. Mm -hmm. You can't lose at home to fall to 0-4 in SEC play, 0-5 against Power 5 competition, that would be, to a Vandy team who has not won an SEC game in the 2020s decade. That buyout, which I actually messed up um, when I brought it up a few weeks ago before the Auburn game. Mm Mm-hmm. His original contract, and, and this is all like, unless there's been some, sometimes these things get worked out behind closed doors and they never right. see the light of day. So this is all just what's been reported, what's kind of out there. Um, his original contract, six years, 24 million bucks, $4 million a year, which was considered a splashy hire for Mizzou at the time. Of course, we have seen so many different SEC head coaches elevate, you know, you talk about like a Sam Pittman, even a Josh mm-hmm. Heupel, these guys that are getting these raises to move up and pass kind of that, that $4 million mark. After this year, that means he's got twelve million bucks left on the contract, but he only gets seventy percent of the remaining deal if he's fired, which is about eight point four million dollars. 
that's a steal, honestly. Right. Shout out to their AD. Maybe maybe not a great hire. We're still on the fence about that. But hey, you can get out of it. Um, not everybody can say that, Connor. <laughs> yes. I mean, ask South Carolina fans about that with Will Muschamp. All right. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, there are some bad extensions that are that are out there. And this is important to remember, not because we like saying that every coach who loses a, a couple of games is on the hot seat, but the key thing to remember here in the dynamics of why uh, Eli Drinkwitz is very much trying to avoid a loss in this in this must-win game. Mm-hmm. Jim Sterk was the athletic director who hired him. He is no longer there. Mizzou is very much in jeopardy of falling behind in the East when it looks like a lot of these teams are kind of improving and kind of turning the corner and you're going in the wrong direction when you're supposed to be the play caller, the offensive-minded guy who's kind of leading this team into a new era of offense. And so far you haven't done that yet. And that's the problem real quick on that. Uh, that, That's a really good point. And I think that Tennessee has completely changed things in the sec because that turnaround was 18 months. You know what I'm saying? From McDonald's bags and laughing stock of the sec to beating Alabama. And now like, you know, on a course to be potentially, you know, in the college football playoff, obviously still to play Georgia, but for a year two of a rebuild, that's almost unheard of, you know? And so if you are, you know, these other teams and not, 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 not to dump on those teams, but we kind of had this pecking order forever. As long as I've been on this podcast, maybe as long as, you know, I've worked with SDS where it's like, okay, you got Georgia and you kind of got Florida most years. And then it's like, okay, then Kentucky. And now it's like, no, no, Tennessee is now vaulted to second. Kentucky still, I feel pretty happy with where they are. They still have a chance to beat Tennessee, obviously. So that could change. But when you talk about these other programs like Mizzou to your point and, and, you know, South Carolina, Florida, where it's like, oh gosh, we thought we just had to beat Georgia. Now we got to beat Georgia. And Tennessee, yes. you know, and and that that makes the climb that much deeper. And, mm-hmm. I mean, Mizzou fans saw that last year when Tennessee comes in there, and that was just over from the jump. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that was year one hypo before they really got going and figured things out. That was what the first game that Cedric Tillman had been like a starting receiver for yeah. that team, and here they are a year later doing what they're doing. So yeah, it might kind of skew things for some of these coaches in the East who think, okay, well, you know, I have time, and as long as we're showing that those progressions, but. Mizzou is in a really tough spot right now because we talked about how they were pretty much the unanimous number six team in the East coming into this year. Mm-hmm. And if you're losing to this Vandy team, which has obvious weaknesses and they've got a true freshman starting quarterback, albeit one that we just gave credit to, let the yeah. record show. Don't get mad at me, Vandy fans who are listening to this. It's still a really tough pill to swallow, but I don't think that happens. I think Mizzou mm-hmm. wins this game. I think Brady Cook is able to pass against that very, very bad Vandy passing defense. I think Mizzou has receivers streaking wide open. This ends up being an exhale 45 to 21 Mizzou win. And we don't have to talk about whether Eli Drinkowitz is going to be fired on Sunday. Let's go I, on to. I just want to say anything else. Yeah, I just this is a this is a fun fact about this okay. too. So I I texted you about this when it happened, but we we kind of bullied the Mizzou defense last year under Steve Wilkes, and I texted you or I tweeted about this too, saying you know in eight months Steve Wilkes from be, went from being like the worst P five defensive coordinator to being an NFL head coach because he went to Carolina and took over for Matt Rule. Well, don't you know it? In like his first game as a head coach, he immediately got the fight with Robbie Anderson. 
<laughs> so Mizzou fans are probably somewhere just like, yep, Steve, told you this guy was a bum. <laughs> right? Yeah. If, if you have nothing else, you feel good about your defensive coordinator. Blake Baker has been yep. exactly what you could have hoped for when you have, to, and especially poor Mizzou fans have to watch Ryan Walters doing what he's doing in Illinois. Man, that guy has really emerged into mm-hmm. one of the top assistants in all of college football. He could be in the running at season, depending on if Illinois ends up winning the Big Ten West, which <laughs> – Bert looks like he's going to do. I mean, that that's a crazy thought, but here we are. Bert, that, back in the Big Ten title oh, <laughs> Back where he belongs. This is this is exactly what we need from Brett Bielema. But yeah, if Ryan Walters ends up uh, getting getting a head coaching job sometime soon with a really good Illinois defense, then it certainly wouldn't be a surprise. And Mizzou fans would kind of be like, ah, that's kind of a bummer. But Blake Baker is actually good. So right. at least he's not Steve Wilkes. Okay, Bama hosting number 24, Mississippi State. Bama's a 21-point favorite. The over-under, 16 Mississippi State points. Will, why do I have 16 Mississippi State points, you ask? Is that something they haven't done before under Leach? Well, mm, yes and no. Um, in the last four years, Alabama has outscored Mississippi State 152-16. to 16. Oh, to- oh. total. Oh. Four years, 152-16. to 16. These have been beatdowns, mm-hmm. total just drubbings. I went back and I found all the examples of Alabama responding after a midseason loss. So basically, any red regular season game that isn't the Iron Bowl, right? Mm-hmm. Or, that's what we're talking about. Um, because we're the reason that's important is all right. What do you do after a loss? You know, not necessarily talking about what you do with extra time, all those things. Eight no, average margin of victory is twenty five point six points. If we want to limit it to SEC games, 20.3 points per game they have won by, uh, which explains probably why the line is minus 21. Of those eight regular season games that they have won after a loss, four of them were against Mississippi State. Yep. I was just about to say this schedule always ends up that way because remember in 2019, LSU. they lost to LSU and then they beat down Mississippi State. That was the game that Tua got hurt in. And I think that they also didn't they play Mississippi State after AM last year as well? Yes. The schedule, for whatever reason, Mississippi State is always just waiting after one of these Bama losses. It's, it's really unfortunate. The Simpsons meme, I'm in danger. They see Bama the week before they're rooting for Bama. Like, please just win this week so you're not angry when you play oh, us. They, they always get them. They're always just ready. And it's it's very daunting on a couple of fronts. Maybe this year will change. I, I don't think so. I mean, they have yet to keep it within two scores uh, in those games, of course. I've been saying for a while that I think Mike Leach has been more willing to run the ball because of what he watched happen in these first two games he has coached against Bama, wherein his team had no chance because Bama's edge rushers could just pin their ears back and tee off on Will Rogers. I guess it was, I think it was KJ Costello who started in the first game, but Will Rogers had to come in. But you get what I'm saying. Will Rogers had four sacks in this game last year. Took over. And you're like, oh, wait, what about Charles Cross? Uh, This great left tackle that Mississippi State had. Well, you just move Will Anderson to the other side, which is what they did. And Mm -hmm. then he just takes over in that way. This is a bad matchup for Mississippi State. Those tackles, I think, are going to be in a lot of trouble. I do. And while I I praise... thought about the Mississippi State tackles that are new. Oh, I saw them against LSU and it wasn't wasn't pretty. And even against Kentucky where... You know, I, I think Will Rogers, it, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same exact narrative. It wasn't like he was getting sacked. 
uh, on seemingly like every important drop back, but he was very confused, of course, in that game with what they were able to do kind of with their defensive front and all the different looks that they threw at him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I praise Leach for the adjustments, right? The, we talk mm-hmm. about actually being willing to run the football. He still doesn't use tight ends though. And yeah. It would be really nice to have a tight end in pass protection, or maybe that's overrated. I don't know, because sometimes a tight end chipping actually throws off the tackle or the guard and they get out of rhythm. We, we just kind of play the results on that, but take that for what it is. Um, I'll, I'll actually agree with um, Gerald Mincy, the um, the Tennessee left tackle. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to agree with him. Um, if you didn't see what Gerald Mincy said, the Tennessee left tackle who did not buy Will Anderson saying Alabama had anxiety and um, posted on IG, no nah, fam, you just suck. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't see that. I was not ready for that punch in the face. <laughs> I'm going to disagree. I'm going to disagree with Gerald Mincy. I'm going to say that Will Anderson doesn't suck. Maybe I'm in the minority for saying that. Um, I think he gets three sacks in this game and becomes the story. He takes over. He reestablishes himself as a game wrecker. Mark Stoops gave Nick Saban and Pete Golding. Yes, Pete Golding is still part of this too, much to the frustration of Alabama fans. Yeah. Um, I think I think they get a, a, a nice bounce back week to confuse Will Rogers, and they end up rolling in this game. I'll take Bama to cover and win 42 to 14. Just kind of one of those Bama flexes respond respond type of games. And I'm not out on Mississippi State being a decent team. We've talked them up a lot, but I think this is just a bad matchup. Yeah, I'm starting to think that with Mississippi State, like, and we, listen, I am the biggest Leech disciple. Like, like I love Leech. I love Arnett. Like, you call yourself a disciple. Like, like <laughs> not disciple, but like, like appreciator. Like, I have, we, we, that was one of the first things I talked about here is the Leech coaching tree. So I don't want you guys to think that I'm anti Leech, but it almost feels like Leech is some type of a stopgap at Mississippi State because I, I don't, I just don't think that offense can beat Alabama. I'm going to be honest with you, because when you think about how that offense succeeds, it's often through defenses not being on the same page. And you could say, oh, well, their defense didn't look on the same page last week. Buddy, every defense is not going to look on the same page against Hendon Hooker. And so at the end of the day, we've talked about it. Any play can be a touchdown against Mississippi State because a five-yard slant can you know, turn into a touchdown whenever you miss a tackle. Well, if Alabama is at a point where they're missing tackles in the middle of the field, yeah. they're like a level of sorry that, Saban will just retire. Like, he's just like, you guys aren't listening to me, these dang kids. I'm tuning it out. So point being like, as much as I love Leach, I just think he's a bad fit to beat Saban simply because that offense will never confuse Saban. Saban's seen it a billion times. He's been around almost as long as Leach has. And it's like, you need to show some new stuff. Like, you know, uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, 2019 LSU, like Tennessee, like stuff that you're like, oh, I'm not used to seeing that. And it, and and we've talked about Alabama being like kind of having the penalties and having the miscues. And I'm not sitting here saying this is like a quote unquote well-coached Alabama team because a lot of Alabama fans say, oh, we beat ourselves. And I could see some of that, like a little bit of that, but it's not to the level that you should be worried about Mississippi State, in my opinion. Yeah, and you, you bring up a good point about why that game plan doesn't necessarily work against an Alabama or a Georgia, mm-hmm. you are hoping that you can methodically drive downfield. And I know that Will Rogers will take some chances over the top. He will. Mm-hmm. It's not that he never does and that every single play is five yards. But at the same time, we saw with Tennessee, you're going to beat Alabama and even AM last year in that game where they're, they're being able to, to stretch the field and they're taking advantage of some of those busts on the back end, which if you are essentially saying Alabama – we think that you know you can tackle in space, which 
they can. That hasn't necessarily been their issue. Um, I would tend to think that Alabama should be able to get enough of those stops to where even if Mississippi State gets a little bit of momentum going, you're still at some point going to face that third and nine where mm-hmm. you're going to throw behind the sticks and then you're realizing, oh, yeah, it's it's punt here, punt there. I will say one more thing really quick. Sorry, I know we got got a couple of games, but this is an interesting point. So whenever I've been asked to explain the air raid to people, I always say, well, it's the thought that my fifth best receiver is better than your fifth best cornerback. And Mississippi State versus Alabama, that's not necessarily true. But it made me think of an interesting point. Is this the game where Eli Ricks gets some playtime? Maybe, man. They don't need him. They they will, one would think. It's been weird. It's been really weird. Um, And I saw some people being like, oh, you know, he actually – you know, he didn't have any Alabama stuff on his IG before that or whatever. And I'm like, okay, so the LSU picture then we're just supposed to we're just supposed <laughs> to assume nothing from that. But I mean, kind of take that for what it is. It's it is still strange to hear th- that he has just not been a, a fixture with how great his career started off at LSU and and the things that we thought he was going to be capable of. The, the buy-in just hasn't necessarily been there yet at Alabama at a place where you'd think, oh, you walk in there, you're a talented defensive back, here's your first-round draft pick, and go enjoy tens of millions of dollars in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And it just has not been the case yet. So maybe they will need him in this one. I would tend yeah, maybe to Maybe this is the Eli Ricks get-right game. There you go. Maybe. Look at you being an optimist, Will. I'm Love it. Now. Love it. Ain't a three-point favorite against South Carolina. The over-under I have... One, Connor Wigman rep, the five-star true freshman quarterback who, um, according to Jimbo Fisher, isn't going to start in this one because Jimbo says Haynes King is a go. He's working through an injury. He had the bye week to get right, if you will. Mm -hmm. The question is if King can get through a full game and would Jimbo at any point be willing to say, Haynes King, you're not getting it done. I'm going to put a true freshman into this spot. Mm. I don't know. Jibbo wants him to hold on to that red shirt. He does. Mm-hmm. For what it's worth, Wigman could still play in this game, hold on to the red shirt. We know the four-game threshold. He has yet to play a snap this year. They've played a lot of true freshmen from that decorated class. He hadn't been one of them. He hasn't. At AM, true freshman quarterbacks have 28 pass attempts and zero starts under Jimbo Fisher. Yeah. At Florida State, James Blackman was the only true freshman to start a game at quarterback under Jimbo. But not, and not on purpose. And not on purpose at all, Will. Great point. <laughs> because 2017, DeAndre Francois goes down in the opener against Alabama. We know how that season played out. Um, probably one that Jimbo pretends just doesn't exist. And when you have a true freshman starting quarterback, according to Jimbo Fisher, it's just an asterisk and it shouldn't count against your record. Of course. He probably would say that. Anything but your opening day roster. If a receiver gets hurt, a quarterback, a left tackle, just go ahead and don't count that one if you're Jimbo. Uh, you know what? Also, I'll, I'll actually say James Blackman, James Blackman was a backup. He was a QB yeah. too. So, right. yep. No, it's count counting. That's fine. I really think that Jimbo doesn't want to play Wigman, though. I don't think he wants to play that card unless, like you said, he absolutely has to. But down the stretch, we'll see how this plays out. If AM does get that fourth loss or something like that, this would be a fantastic spin zone for him to be able to kind of get people off his back about the, the struggling offense. He could talk about the maturation and all of a sudden it's like the clock resets and you get mm-hmm. to talk about, oh, we improved here, we improved there, and look how many points we scored here. It's like, well, 
it's not as simple as just that. And you should still probably turn this offense over. This offense, I think, is in for a really tough matchup because South Carolina's defense has made some nice progress after a pretty rough start. And yeah, they got to face Kaya Sharon against Kentucky. The previous games were against an FCS team in Charlotte. So kind of take that for what it is. But it's going to be sold out at williams Bryce. Mm-hmm. A&M is 0-2 in true road games, and they only average 3.7 yards per carry in that in those two road games. So how much can they really rely on Devon A-Chain? I don't necessarily know. There's an elephant in the room, though. It's probably why a and a road favorite. I bet, I bet you're wondering, A&M minus three? Really? Do you realize that the Aggies have never lost to South Carolina? Like, ever? Ever. ever. And they, oh. yeah, they, <laughs> they play every year because they became crossover rivals. Put those air quotes there. Mm-hmm. Um, 2014 through 2021, eight consecutive wins for the Aggies. They dominated last year. That was the game where I can't remember how many how many yards South Carolina had through the third quarter, but it was like they had 14 total yards or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, oh, oh this is this was poor bad. South Carolina last year. We were rooting oh. for them so hard because they had to deal with so much. And there were games like that where you were just oh like, like come on. Oh, oh, this is what it looks like when you have a grad assistant <laughs> and the opposing defensive line is just a bunch of dudes who are gonna be playing the NFL. Um yeah. Okay. Zabulio versus some grown man is what that was. Not great. I, things have changed though. They, they have. I, I'm going to take South Carolina to win and cover. I am. I think they're going to play really well at home. And this is probably going to be famous last words. And it's going to come back to bite me. But I think Marcus Satterfield has had enough time with the bye week to realize his offense needs to revolve around Marshawn Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And you cannot put the ball in harm's way against a young opportunistic AM defense, which I would call them that at this point, low scoring, maybe like 24, 17 South Carolina finally gets over the hump. The AM offense continues to sputter Shane Beamer post game celebration, family on the field talks about finally beating the Aggies for the first time and how that was one of the things he set out to do when he became a head coach. You could see it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I was texting with you joking about this, but this is definitely like a Jimbo Fisher versus Marcus Satterfield, like cone of shame game. Like whoever loses this game, because these are like the two offensive coordinators that we Mm -hmm. give some of the most, you know, outside of Mike Denbrock, obviously you just had his redemption, but like these are two of the guys who are stuck in like, you know, the olden days. And and to your point, it's like, who's going to innovate first? (laughs) Because one of you has to win. (laughs) I think Satterfield is innovated. I think he's in. I don't think that's his issue. I, I, I think that he is. Still, I, I think he's stubborn. I, I absolutely think he's stubborn, mm-hmm. but I think he is innovated to a fault. And I okay. think he wants, I, I think that's actually his problem is that he wants to innovate and he thinks he has these McVeigh Shanahan concepts down mm-hmm. when his personnel is not built for that. They don't have the offensive line to operate in that capacity. They don't, they, they really don't. And they also don't have the quarterback who can make those decisions to, to allow them to be able to execute that system to its full to its full capabilities. And I think that's actually what's holding South Carolina back. But it's the stubbornness of the offensive <laughs> play callers that I think has been their undoing so their, their undoing so far. Yeah, I mean, it's like one of those flow charts. It's like, are you hiring a Shanahan McVeigh guy? Yes. Are they Shanahan McVeigh or the guy in Green Bay? No. Probably don't hire <laughs> 
<laughs> based yeah. on what we've seen. Not that they're all bad. I'm not dumping on all of them, but how many guys have we seen across college football now? Zach Taylor is the guy I was immediately thinking of with the Bengals. That it's like that is the most archaic, bad offense of all time. I'm not even talking about college football, but it's like, and these guys, like, you got to give them time to kind of make their own mold. But if you have this offensive room where you can never really tell, um, we've seen so many staffs like that. The Saban staffs, like the 2019 LSU staff that have all these great minds, the Eagle staff in 2017 is another great one that it's just like, okay, who's the real brains behind this? And it's hard to kind of suss that out whenever you hire these guys. So Kentucky obviously has another one and you saw them kind of battle it out. And it's just going to be fun to watch these guys kind of figure it out from that coaching tree. But yeah, to, to your point, like to get back to this game, I just, I, I feel, I feel a in this one for whatever reason, like Jimbo finds a way to like, get just up to the edge of like everybody being out on him. And then he'll win like a game. Like and I feel game. like, Yep, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I feel like that's exactly where we're at here. Not that I'm dumping on South Carolina, but you know, as much as we love the Kentucky win, second time I'm going to say that today, the, the, uh, as much as we love the Kentucky win, it's like, are those things kind of like, does that go like, can you take that and extrapolate it to something else? If you could, it would be against AM. I think this would be a really good game because that offense is about as good as Kentucky's is without Will Levis. But point being, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think AM's got to do this one because this is like, it's not buyout territory, I don't think, at any point this season. But that's like a game that you could look back at in a couple of years and be like, okay, this is when we knew Jimbo was like not a fit here, you know? Year five, yeah. By the way, the people need to know, Will is wearing an all-time sweatshirt right now. <laughs> it is the Joe Burrow sunglasses. Um, what does it say on the front? Almost. Almost Friday. Oh, there we go. Oh, that's perfect. That's beautiful. Yeah, man. That is- be swagged up. That is, look, the fact that he went into New Orleans and beat your Saints, I think <laughs> he, he he just owns you now. That's the way this works. It's, it's uh, NFL imperialism. Listen, if uh, if the Saints are going to lose, as they often do this year, you know, a, a really nice Joe Burrow scramble into the end zone through the defense and just a dart to Jamar Chase. Uh, you know, how can you wish for better, really? I love the full conversion that you've gone through. <laughs> I'll just be like, when the Saints suck, just everything Joe Burrow. That's oh, listen, fine. today's Pell's opening tip-off, buddy. I'm fully in Pell's mood now. The Saints, never heard of them. Love it. Love it. All right, lock of the week. I'm over 500. Oh, four yeah. And, four and three, thanks to Texas. Nearly losing outright to Iowa State, might I add, a game that mm-hmm. was just a dogfight for the Longhorns. I, I believe I'm four out of my last five, I think, after that really bad start. We've got back on track. Yeah, in, in a hurry. Okay, I'm going to get to five and three, and here's how I'm going to do it. Ohio State giving 28 and a half at home against Iowa. For everyone saying, Connor, don't fall for the trap. It's Iowa. This is where they thrive. It's in Columbus. Last time Ohio State lost to a Big Ten team in Columbus, it's 2015. It's been a minute. out. Do you remember who that team was they lost to? Was it Penn State? Michigan State. Oh, man. That was, of course, because that was the year that they were good with our, our boy, Connor Cook. Connor Cook didn't even play in that game. I'll give you I'll give you 10 bucks if you can tell me the starting quarterback of that game. Oh, brother. I just guessed it was Connor Cook, so you got me there. <laughs> Tyler O'Connor. Of course. Yeah. Uh, even so, it was two Connors. That's how Big Ten this was. Exactly. It was, it was Connor Cook or Tyler O'Connor, which might be the most Irish name of all time. Two people who actually spell Connor the correct way, too. So of shout course. out to them. Yeah. Um, so look, I realize Iowa's defense, good, very good. Um, they haven't faced anything like Ohio State yet. 
they, they haven't. And, and if you want to point all these, throw all these numbers at me, fine. Okay. Tell me what it's like to actually have to face a team with those kinds of weapons from the big 10 East, because they rank number one in America in offense and scoring offense, despite the fact that they haven't had Jackson Smith and Jigma basically the entire year. Think about this. The two best offenses in the country, Ohio state, Tennessee, have base have been without their top receiver for the majority of the season. Mm-hmm. And it just hasn't mattered. He might be back in this game. Oh man. I don't even know if that matters. I think this just screams 35 to 3, 35 to nothing type game. I know there's potential for the look ahead to Penn State, you know, Iowa. Imagine having two weeks to prepare for Iowa and you turn on that film and you turn on their offense. And you're just like Buddy, I'm going to do anything else besides pretending this is an actual threat because Ohio State's defense is actually good now. They are right. good with Jim Knowles. Yep. No, that's I, not to be disparaging anyone, but I feel like I could prepare for Iowa in about three days. So if you got two weeks and you're Jim Knowles. Oh, we can disparage. <laughs> if there's ever anything that we can disparage in this podcast, it's the Iowa offense. Mm-hmm. I mean, seeing Brian Ferentz in that press conference, the Iowa offensive coordinator who has been the greatest individual benefactor of nepotism that we have in college football in recent memory, mm-hmm. seeing him respond to questions about putting in the backup quarterback all time, all time. He's like, what's the upside in that? He's like, no, like I'm legitimately asking you. I don't know the upside of playing the backup I don't know. I've never thought about it. <laughs> I have like, four plays, brother. It slants four verts and PA. I don't- He's like, I know based on what we've seen in practice so far, this is what we're going with. And it's like, but the games... <laughs> The games suggest otherwise. <laughs> so you're there for the game. You're not just like on a different astral plane. That's hilarious. I love that. And he's fireproof. So unbelievable. We A&M we, fans, South Carolina fans. Hey, could be worse, guy. <laughs> I was telling uh, uh, our friend Shahan Jiraja about like we should all really aspire for those levels of nepotism. It, mm-hmm. It's elite. It, it really, really is. So, yeah, give me Ohio State's cover minus 28 and a half in that one. Not repeated 2017. Not going to happen. Let's kick it to Feinbaum. I was thinking back. If you remember, um, Feinbaum was the first guest that we had on this new version of the Saturday Down South podcast back in January of 2021. And mm-hmm. our first episode was the morning that Tennessee hired Josh Heupel. And I remember texting him that morning, just trying to make sure that he was still going to be good uh, mm-hmm. to come on. He's like, yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about. But it doesn't really feel like it was that long ago because it kind of wasn't. 20 months, I guess that was, if I did math correctly. Yeah, 20 months. So great perspective from Paul on the balls, the rapid rise, and a whole lot of other things. So here is Paul Feinbaum. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is the one and only Paul Feinbaum. Paul, how was your first casket experience on Saturday? It was uh, enlightening. Uh, I mean, it's, I've had so many thoughts in there. Uh, You know, someone asked me when I got back uh, in town, what was it like? And the cliche machine just ran ran amok with it was like being in eternity. It's uh, you know endless endless jokes about uh, being one of the few people ever to step out of a casket. Um, but it was a uh, it was a really cool thing, and I I, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, the producers of the show uh, came up with the idea. They asked me if I would do it. Uh, there was uh, from a personal enjoyment standpoint if i could just tell you and nobody else uh nobody's listening this, that's fine watching some of the espn suits the very nervous I and mean, here they got this guy in his 60s uh in a casket what if they don't what if he 
checks out. It's their career other than my life, of course. And I mean, so I, I really, uh, I had no fear, uh, you know, with Tim Tebow on the set, uh, what was the danger? Like Tebow could not crack a casket open in half. I mean, I was never, I was never in doubt. If you had died on national television and already been in the casket, What's yeah. what's the complaint? That's not a lawsuit. That's a gold mine for for everybody. Everybody's making money I, off that. Much better career move than Elvis ever had. Um, I said to Tebow uh, in our meeting right before the show. I said, Tim, listen, I never like to infringe upon you. I mean, you're a worldwide superstar, and I'm just some schmo. But in the event that I, I, I die, I'm not asking you to come to the funeral. I know that would that would that would be inconvenient. But could you maybe just tweet out a couple of words of remembrance and he, he, he literally almost fell over laughing. It was so funny. Is Tebow in the will? Uh, yeah, he is. I mean, cause I'm, I feel like he's an adopted son. <laughs> so for those who don't know what we're talking about, um, <laughs> which I probably should have mentioned. Good idea. Good idea. Yeah. You're, 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 you're good in this business. Somebody, somebody is listening to this for two minutes. Like, wait, Paul was in a casket. Like what the hell's going on? Um, so your pick SEC nation was preceded by you being carried in a closed casket, not open casket. We don't want you to act too much and actually have yeah. to fake your own death. Um, only to have you pop out full Tennessee gear. You show the revival of Tennessee. It's the undertaker gif. I, I, I got to imagine that you can go through something like that. You put on the production and you're deep in your soul. You knew that there was a possibility that you were going to get cold taked badly when you do something like that. And you're thinking to yourself, I know, I know you said all week, Tennessee's going to beat Alabama. You said it all week, but you know, in your heart of hearts, there's a chance that Saban just kicks my face in and this blows up in my face. Exactly. And yeah, it's, you know, for the audience that's maybe joining us from outer space, uh, I did go to Tennessee, well-known. I've also lived most of my life in Alabama, no longer, but my home's in Alabama, as, as the song goes. And it, nobody really, be, both sides don't believe whenever I say anything. So uh, it would have, I have rarely, if ever, picked against Alabama in the Saban era. And if Alabama had won 42 to 14, uh, the callers on the fine bomb show would have never let me out. And, and, and I, but I, you know, I don't try to, I mean, I really did believe it. Uh, uh, sometimes I've, you, you don't, I mean, you, picking games is a whole nother podcast, Connor. And it's, it's something I detest, but that's beside the point. Um, but this felt like the right thing. And when ten, then you start, you start, Going through your mind during the game, okay, Tennessee's got a big lead. Even if Alabama comes back, it wasn't a bad pick, but you know that. If you're right, it's great. If you're wrong, it doesn't matter how the game ended. Uh, you are going to have your face rubbed in it. What was your emotions watching that play out? Because we can talk all we want about a program kind of coming back from from the dead, and it's all just kind of fun and games. But when you actually see it play out before your eyes and you realize that you're witnessing one of these special moments, and there are very few in the past 10-plus years that we could point to and say that was a key moment in the history of SEC football, and you see one playing out like that, what kind of goes through your mind? Because it, it's, it, it takes the, the conversations that we're having right now afterwards to a different level. And there's before this happened and there's after this happened. Uh, I was really happy with it. And, and I don't cheer per se, Connor. I, I, I'm, 
I'm selfish in one regard. I'm only thinking what story is best for me. <laughs> I mean, it's all about the content right? game. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, and that's how most of us are. Uh, we're not really fans for the teams. We're fans for ourselves. Uh, and I'm thinking if this happens, what does it mean? If that happens, sometimes it's circumstantial. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pause for a second there. Uh, the week of the, the Saturday, the Texas game, I had flown back from, I don't even remember where, uh, but, but uh, from somewhere that day. And I walked in the house as the game was ending and I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, Texas is beating Alabama. And I didn't really care about Alabama. I cared about the fact that I had already agreed to be in little rock on that Monday for a speech which I, heard, I never do that during the season, but I didn't think there was any downside. It was a bad weekend. That was the only game that mattered. And, I, I, and so you're thinking, I'm canceling. I'm not going. I mean, there's no way you're missing. <laughs> so in uh, this time, I, I really just had fun with the moment. Um, and it wasn't because I went to Tennessee. That was a long time ago. It wasn't because uh, I'm, I'm rooting against Alabama because I don't. Uh, it was just for all the negativity. And I'm, I'm, I started my career looking under garbage cans. Uh, it was just truly really one of the most remarkable moments in college football, in modern college football history. Uh, and when you see that many people enjoy a moment, it, it's hard to be cynical uh, like we all are. How many texts were you getting as that's happening? Because you got the people that I'm sure from the Alabama side, you got the Tennessee side. And I always try, like my experience on Saturday is obviously a lot different than yours when you're doing SEC Nation and you're trying to get back home and you're trying to consume things in a different sort of way. But I got to imagine you had just people out the wazoo reaching out to you. And is that just like a put your phone away? I'm only pulling out my phone if I'm looking at scores, but I can't be responding to a million texts right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to uh, I try to re respond to some. Uh, it, it's one of those things that you know, you, I'm hearing more from Alabama fans than I am Tennessee fans. I mean, my college roommate did call. He always does after a big Tennessee win, which means I haven't heard from him in 15 years. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, it, it was truly remarkable. And I'm not, I'm not caught up in the moment very often because you know, there really aren't that many moments like that. You know, you can go down in history. I mean, it, I'm not from a fan standpoint, Georgia fans will forever remember Indianapolis. I couldn't wait to get out of there. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Just because it was cold or because you didn't like Indy, because if you didn't like Indy, that's a problem. No, it was only because it was it was it was the mean temperature was 17 degrees. Sure. And, and when the wind chill, I felt like I was at the North Pole that I, I view everything according to weather. Uh, no, Indianapolis is a perfectly nice city. But all I remember is it was the walking out of that stadium was one of the coldest experiences oh, I have ever felt. It was bad. Uh, that's the memory I have of Indy. Uh, it wasn't the game. It was the cold. Um, so that's how I view things. I mean, the kick six. I remember being there that night and. That was just, I was bothered by that, not because I don't like Auburn, because I was really rooting for the, the Saban three-peat. It was just history. Uh, it was, uh, and, and then we just shattered, I mean, into a thousand pieces. Uh, nothing was really shattered on Saturday night, except it was just, yeah, being a native Tennessee, and you just couldn't help but uh, have pride. And, and, and as, a, as a kid growing up and as a, as a college student, and then I moved to Alabama not long afterwards, that game was just so special. And I, I don't want to wax poetic like so many old timers. Oh, man, you don't know what it was like on the third Saturday in October because most young people don't have any idea what it was like. Uh, that was my game. Uh, we, 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 we lived for that game in college. I, I lived for that game when I was in Birmingham. And then all of a sudden uh, the divisional play started. 
and it was streaky. And then Alabama just took over the world. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because, and I was uh, talking to, ironically enough, Andy Staples about this last week. And he's like, you know, would it be bigger for Alabama or would it be bigger for Tennessee to beat Alabama or beat Georgia? Because obviously Georgia, it's got the divisional implications, but I'm just like, there's something about getting over that Alabama hump that is just different. And you see it play out and not to, not to minimize it because I think Tennessee fans obviously would have been crazy to be, you know, they would have gone nuts to, to beat Georgia as well, but you, you just see that scene and you can't, you just can't recreate that. And there's only so much that you can talk about in terms of buildup to be able to get to that moment. And so now everybody kind of wants to know, well, all right, can this Tennessee team win a national championship if they've gotten over that hump? Because I don't really think that I don't think in that sort of way with this Tennessee team, just because I think the only way this ends up being kind of a little bit of a disappointing year. And I put that in air quotes is if they lose multiple regular season games and they don't get a chance to even play in an SEC championship and they know they're not playing for a spot in the playoff going into conference championship weekend. But that's that's kind of the way I see things. And maybe maybe you see it differently and you're like, no, Tennessee, this is this is the first thing you need to do to win a national championship. No, I mean, I'm, I've never really thought of Tennessee in, in this con- in that context right now, and I'm still not because uh, you know they got they have a couple of tricky games. Uh, they've shown already that uh, they can play with fire. They, in fact, they've shown it three times yeah. <laughs> this year. So I, I I'm not hung up on that. Um, I think it's already been an amazing year at Tennessee, and I, there's not much that's going to change that in my mind. Hennon Hooker, if you're writing your Heisman vote right now is he, is he your vote or are you going cj Shaw? Yeah. yeah i mean i'd probably go for hendon hooker but i i think as you know uh the heisman is a tricky deal i, m- I remember uh, uh texting with bryce young's father last november uh and after uh i can't remember exactly what had happened but uh, alabama seemed like they had gone off the map for a week or two and and he said uh you know, we really, uh, Bryce is a big fan of Hendon. They got to know each other. And, you know, excuse me, uh, Bryce is a big fan of CJ. Uh, they got to know each other at the seven on sevens. And, you know, uh, we're happy that he's going to win the Heisman. And then all of a sudden it all changed. That's how quick that was in November. So I, you, I, I try not to get, uh, too Heisman centric, but, but today, and, uh, but today Hooker would be the, would be the favorite, but that's going to change. I can assure you. How does that work? Is, Bryce Young's dad texting you or are you reaching out to him? Like he gets your number from somebody else. And obviously well, he got it for me. Uh, it, it turned out that about, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, I was on a plane going to, to Alabama to speak at the university and uh, a guy tapped me on, on the, my shoulder. And he said, um, he said, man, he said, you've been tough on Bryce Young. And I'm like going, I'm, I'm trying to remember what I've said because I really had not been that tough. I had been tough on him maybe his first year because he, he had, it took a while and he finally introduced himself and we started talking and we, we, so that's how uh, that began. And then I ran into Bryce one day and uh, told him about meeting his dad. And yeah, I, I don't, uh, I don't know a lot of these people just because uh, you know, I do a show. It's, it's usually happenstance. Bryce Young's dad tapping you on the shoulder. I mean, like you've been kind of tough on Bryce Young, you know, it's just personal opinion, unbiased opinion here. <laughs> it had been like once, I think it was when Mac Jones was a quarterback, I had said uh, something like, yeah, I, I, I was expecting more out of Bryce Young uh, this year. Cause I mean, there was some talk that maybe he would start his first year. And, and then he, he, he could have probably he, yeah, very easily. Uh, but 
dead. Uh, that's a podcast. Uh, that's a different podcast. Yeah, me, uh, Paul Feinbaum, and spouses and and parents. Uh, that that's that's for another day. Do you? Uh, what's is is there one that comes to mind that you you you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this person said had the audacity to say something like this to me. We could statute of limitations is up for anybody that's more than what five yes. years removed from it. There's a couple. Uh, one was a mother uh, of a basketball coach uh, who chased me down after a game with a cane. Um, <laughs> another was uh, Gene Shizik's wife uh, with Gus Malzahn's wife. And in the, in the, uh, there was like a recruiting room uh, after the Iron Bowl. I went in because I was doing a TV show and it was 30 degrees. So we were just taking we were just trying to warm up. And the two of them, uh, I don't I mean, they literally tag team would have all kinds of comment connotations, <laughs> but they, they began to berate me. And I thought it was going to be a fight. I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Uh, it, it was getting vicious. They, this was an 09 iron bowl, which uh, Alabama won at the end of the game with a McElroy pass to somebody. Um, and it kept Alabama alive and they were, they were heartbroken losing the game in the final minute. And finally in the middle of the conversation, uh, they said, you don't know what it's like, uh, Baba, I meant to be a coach's wife and I have to subject. I said, listen, I've got friends. I'm friends with some coaches and their wives and, uh, Malzahn's wife uh, jumped in. So, oh yeah, we know, uh, you love Terry Saban and, and stay in their guest house. And I'm like, I, and I said something, I said, that's not, and I swear, I thought I saw a move from Chizik's wife toward me. I, I really thought we were, we were going to have a fight. Um, and then finally, it's one of the few times I've ever been thankful to Gus Malzahn for anything. He emerged and said, he said, ladies, let's get out of here. I mean, he like ushered them both away, but it, it could have gotten physical. I'm going to give Chizik some not, not by me, but I mean, they were, they were going to start pounding on me and I was just going to just take the beating for, for the good of the game. I'm going to give Chizik some crap for that because the <laughs> fact that he wasn't the one to step in and Gus wasn't knowing what I know about Gus and knowing some of the stories that I've heard about him behind closed doors and how um, let's just say image sensitive he is. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me in the least. And Chizik would be the first to tell you though, that who he was at Auburn, he tried to get away from that, from the media perception. he said that was his biggest regret at Auburn was the fact that he thought everybody was out to get him all the time. And he's had to since do a 180 kind of being on the other side of it. And obviously you've gotten to know him over the years, but that's wild. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Cause I, I had a more public encounter with a, with a coach's wife once, but, um, that was probably the, the most note. Uh, well, quick story. I was in an Alabama basketball game at halftime, Alabama Auburn basketball game. And I had been really tough on Mark Godfrey, the coach. And at halftime, I was looking at my phone or something. All of a sudden I heard screaming and hollering. And I, I, I stood up and Elizabeth Godfrey, Godfrey's wife began just sc screaming at me and hollering and her arms were flail uh, flailing. And this went on, for 15 minutes. How do I know that? Because the game had already started <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I sat down uh, and I'm like going, I wonder, I mean, you're, I said, I wonder, I said, I wonder if anybody saw that. And I started getting my texts. I mean, it was, it was insanity. Um, and I, yeah, and I, one of my best friends was up, was in the, uh, in like the 10th row. And he said, man, he said, he said, I haven't seen anything like that since my first wife dumped me. Uh, you know, it was just like, <laughs> So, yeah, you do have those encounters and, and I'll leave it there because I could continue to go on. But uh, it happens. And my policy is always just keep your mouth shut and whatever they say, just it, let it go.
So confirmed you stayed at the Saban guest house and you've done that before. I, I am, uh, that, that would be something confidential um, <laughs> that uh, you would have to talk to the Sabans about. I'm not, I, I, when you, when you stay at the guest house, you sign, you sign a waiver. I'm not on their, uh, their list of, of guests anytime soon. I can, I can assure you that, um, in the I last not 12 either anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Okay. So speaking of Saban, we, we, we always want to do the dynasty's dead thing, blah, blah, blah. But like the, the things that are actually worth having some context about that I think are, are interesting are the things that haven't happened in a long time that have happened in 12 months or they haven't happened ever. And they've happened in the last 12 months where we're talking about him losing to a former assistant, multiple actually um, losing to a non top 15 team for the first time since the Steven Garcia game. That of course was the streak that ended against AM last year. He has lost to multiple sec East teams for the first time since that day against South Carolina 2010 and obviously losing to Tennessee for the first time ever, Alabama would still be my pick to win the SEC today. And maybe I just have blinders on to some of this stuff, but where do you kind of land on where Alabama is at with Saban right now? Connor, the, the trend lines are, are, are concerning. Uh, and I, I know a lot, a lot of people look to history to try to formulate opinions. I have had the luxury of covering the greatest coach of all time once uh, in, in, in the eighties with, I covered the end of Bryant. Uh, so now I'm covering it again. It seems like a, a long career and it is, uh, but some similar things there, there are some similarities, uh, including a uh, loss to Tennessee ending a, a massively long streak. Mm. Uh, so th- those are there, except the difference is, uh, Paul Bryant in 1982 uh, on this date, 40 years ago, when he lost to Tennessee, looked like he was a hundred years old. Uh, he looked like he had already been in that casket. Uh, Saban doesn't, uh, Saban, Saban still looks like, uh, you know, he, he, he's got some years left. So I, that, that would stop me from, from doing the dynasty is over routine, but there are too many inconsistencies to ignore. And you know that, and I'll, I'll spare the audience some of the obvious, but uh, you, know, you go, you start looking back at last season and all the games Alabama could have lost. Uh, you look at this year and it's, it's very easy to say Alabama could have lost three games. It's not, that does not take any imagination. So that has to be a concern. You look at uh, the inconsistencies in the secondary, you look at the offensive line, you look at the lack of playmakers, you look at the special teams. Uh, the, this, this is not a team that seems to be getting better. So yeah, I I'm, I'm with you on confidence. You, it's, you could go, you would have gone broke going against Nick Saban uh, during this stretch, but you could also, uh, go broke staying, uh, on that, on that spot on the, on the table, doubling down. And there's the other side of this. If you're just, if you're one of those people on the Alabama side saying this is all about they're being officiated in a different sort of way and look at the penalty numbers and all this, it's like, all right, well, if that were actually the case, don't you think Saban would be getting up knowing what Saban does with a microphone and knowing how he is able to kind of spread his, whatever he he feels like a point that needs to be emphasized within his team, within college football, whatever it is, don't you think he'd be getting up to the microphone saying we're being officiated in a different sort of way, take the $25,000 fine and actually make his point to try and move forward. And instead, he's not saying that. He's being critical of his team. He's saying we're having these execution issues. And to me, that's more so that that outweighs what defensive pass interference or what roughing the passer penalty isn't being called in those moments. Listen, uh, if you t- if you go behind the curtain, Connor, Nick Saban can get his message out in five minutes. Yeah. Uh, I've been I've been subject to those messages before uh, when I was in Birmingham, when 
he used to call regularly. Uh, and now when he calls when, uh, it's Desperado. Uh, so yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he just uh, tells his assistant, uh, you know, call this guy, call that guy, call that guy. And, and it's, it's, there, there's no mystery. Uh, so yeah, you're right about that. And I, I just think he's doing a lot of soul searching, uh, probably about himself and more, more important about his staff. When that happens and you know, your Monday is going to be bananas with callers and whatnot, on a scale of like one to kick six, how was it yesterday? Because I, I, it's, it seemed pretty bad. And do you take any, like a, any extra precautions? Are we talking extra Tylenol or maybe a little extra coffee going into the day? <laughs> no, uh, I, the show, yeah, this, the, the Monday show had ebbs and flows. The first hour, far more intense. And then it, it slowed down. And then it, it picked up again about 90 minutes before the end with a, with a streak of, of legends and Larry's and guys that are, that are notorious. Uh, and, and there, there were some epic calls, but it, it was not kick six, uh, kick six. Uh, if I had to you know, l- look back, probably, uh, you know, the most memorable mo- uh, Mondays ever, the first, the one that stands to mind may have been the Steven Garcia, but mm. that was just, that was beyond shocking. Uh, the fact that that could happen. Uh, that Monday, uh, I remember that the kick six Monday, uh, the Texas A&M Monday in the, with Johnny Manziel in 2012, because that looked like that, it was over. Uh, it was a different world back then. When you lost a regular season game, the odds of you. Uh, and, and then there was another one. Uh, the uh, I think it was the second year Alabama lost to Ole Miss. Uh, 2015. When, yeah. Uh, when everybody was riding off Alabama. That was the Dan Wolken dynasty is dead. Very yeah, famous. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Not that, and I don't want to call out Woken. I, I will. Um, That's fine. But uh, this, 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 I'm not saying this was tame. Uh, this was uh, the Alabama people were mostly quiet. Uh, Tennessee people ruled the day. As they should be. As they should be. Okay. You bring up A&M. I think AM fans are, maybe you can confirm or deny this. I think they're different than anyone in the sport. And it kind of explains why they will continue to defend Jimbo. I, I'm not saying everybody, but for the most part, it feels like they are defending Jimbo because the guy is still owed 86 million bucks after this year. And you realize if you're an AM fan, you kind of have to make the best of this. Like there are some who are going to try and convince people that AM season fell apart because of injuries. And they're going to pretend that a perfectly healthy team, mostly healthy, team um, didn't get punched in the mouth by upstate how does this play out with jimbo in a few years because i feel like i have less and less faith in him to lead this team to prominence and to lead this team to the places that he was paid to lead them to with every single decision that he makes connor it's difficult to, to have much faith in him right now or to believe in him and it's like, it's like now every every a&m game becomes uh, a referendum even the game Saturday night against uh, South Carolina, uh, what if he loses that game? Uh, I mean, it, you, you can put up the wall and say, well, nothing's going to happen. But, oh, that's great, but it's, it's still capital that comes off the table. And having been uh, with a bunch of Aggies uh, in Texas a couple of weeks ago, I mean, they're, they're not uh, – and this was, this was two losses ago, I think. Uh, they haven't hit the panic button, but they have to be worried. Uh, because you can talk yourself into thinking you got the right guy when you don't uh, ask, ask Nebraska, uh, ask other programs. And 
I still think he's capable, but it becomes more difficult to recruit when you become you become at the epicenter of controversy. And he is there now. Everyone's talking about him. And and, you know, this is not the year that something will happen. But if he if he limps home this season, he's got three losses. If he has four, if he has four or five. Uh, how does you know where is he in the off season? He's you know, he's firmly on the hot seat. Uh, there's no getting around it. I don't care what the what the number is. A and M fans, A uh, and M boosters want to want a winning program. Uh, they're not they're not. It's like having a a rotting uh, a rotting roof. Uh, yeah, you, oh, it's okay, <laughs> no problem. Uh, next thing you know, you don't have one. Uh, at some point, you have to fix it. I rewatched Pony Excess uh, last week, like last Friday night, I think, just to kind of remind myself of the dynamics at play with how competitive it is. And it's different, obviously. We're talking about the early 80s compared to now. But with the way that football is talked about in that state, with all the, the interstate competition that goes on and how much those dynamics can change in a hurry. And I do remind myself of like, well, this isn't going to be tolerated forever. And I can throw out all these buyout numbers and how gaudy they are. And it probably isn't going to be tolerated forever. And at the very least, if they have a seven and five type season, which it looks like that's what they're heading towards. I think we see Jimbo give up play calling because I think he gets strong armed for maybe the first time since he's been at AM. And I think that's ultimately what could come of something like this because he's been too stubborn. That's that's what it comes down to for me. And Connor, another fear, uh, I think, for AM, uh, other than whether Jimbo is the right coach or not, is what happens at Austin. Uh, that, that is an unusual dynamic uh, where those two schools are aligned and linked as closely as any two in the country, uh, especially at A&M. I'm not sure the folks in Austin are as concerned about what's happening in College Station, but they do care. And they, they, had, they had the upper hand and have had the upper hand, really, uh, since Johnny Manziel was there. Uh, they, they may not have it much longer. And, and with Texas coming into the SEC very soon, uh, that's a problem. Do you think there's any chance that Lane would leave Ole Miss for Auburn? Uh, yes, uh, I do. And, and, you know, again, without knowing how the season plays out, I, I think he uh, is still restless. Uh, and I don't base that on, you know, Lane Kiffin and I having, you know, late night conversations because I, I don't know any more about his future than you do. I'm just offering an opinion and an observation and the thing about Auburn that I think Lane, Lane Kiffin is thinking is it would be so much easier to recruit there than where I am, even though he's doing well. That's self-evident. Uh, but he's having to scramble uh, to stay alive at Ole Miss, where at Auburn there's a much, uh, there's a much stronger recruiting base from a, from a uh, booster standpoint and I think a financial standpoint. I think if you're Lane or if you're Dion, and that's that's the name that everybody's going to continue to throw out there, understandably so. From their perspective, I would need the full Saban Alabama guarantee of knowing that if I if I walk into that room with those power brokers, I'm going to sit them down and say, "Get the f out of my way." Get out of my way. This is my program. I am running this. You're not going to be touching this. And that's the only way that if I'm Lane or if I'm Dion, and again, I'm very much not, I'm considering those jobs because everybody's going to say, well, you know, people are going to continue to line up for the Auburn job because of the money and look at the buyouts and all this stuff. It's like Lane doesn't need money. Dion doesn't need money. 
These guys want to win a national championship. And if they're going to go to a place like that, where they think, okay, we could at least have these resources. They don't want to look back on two years, three years into their jobs and feel like, oh, well, there's this thing that's limiting me from being able to do that. Because Lane clearly feels that right now at Ole Miss with the way that he's talking about the lack of support with people showing up to games and, you know, you bring up the recruiting stuff. Do you think one of those two guys is ultimately going to get this Auburn job? And it's, I think Dion is dynamic. Uh, and watching the 60 Minutes piece this week just, just reinforced that to the country. Agreed. I'm not certain that this is the best place for him. Uh, I, I think he can find a place where he's a little more comfortable. Um, in, in terms of the, the boosters, I think the Auburn mystique about how dysfunctional they are is, is overrated. Mm. Uh, I lived in that state 33 years. I knew that I knew some of the, I, I know some of the main guys who, who are in charge. They get involved when things don't go well. Uh, when things are going well, they are going to be your biggest supporters. And that matters because they have deep pockets. So I think Lane is intrigued by that. And, and I was in Oxford uh, three weeks ago and it was just, it was a sense. It wasn't anything. Everybody says the right thing. You know that, Connor. You go to these campuses. It's just a sense that there's a disconnect there. Uh, you know, whether it's administration to Lane, whether it's just Lane being Lane, I don't know. But I, I sensed it. And I, and I sensed the uneasiness of Lane Kiffin in that place. And Ole Miss folks can come out of the woodwork and say I'm crazy. And they, they may be right. But that's, that's what I felt. So I, I think I think Q Freeze is another name you have to think about there. Uh, there's a there's an attraction there, and I, and I'm sick and tired of hearing that he beat Nick Saban twice. But that's his calling card right now, uh, and it may very well get him a big job. Gus beat him three times. Why well, bring back Gus? What's he up to these days? You know, right? <laughs> well, Gus just kind of play. Gus just kind of cycled out of there. I uh, mean. And, and, and they were uh, Gus should have uh, nothing against him, uh, but it became it, there were too many dysfunctional things that happened. And but but ultimately, and I don't think it matters who the AD is because the AD is not going to pick the next coach anyway. Yep. It's going to be pick, picked in the back room. But I've, I've watched some of those guys and I've known them very well. And, and those guys, those guys are not as countrified and as bumpkin esque as, as we try to make them out to be. I mean, these are smart guys. Who, who just want to win. And I, I frankly think the Auburn job's never been easier, for the, at least for now, because it's not – it used to be you had to beat Alabama every year or, or two. You don't have to anymore. That, mm. Saban has changed that dynamic. Uh, that, that's not as intense a rivalry as it used to be because everybody wants to knock off Alabama. And Auburn just happens to be in the same state. I really want Dion to Auburn – to happen because I want you to go on first take and have to explain to mad dog that Dion is actually a head coach and that he's not still playing for the Cowboys or something like that. Um, which uh, again, you know, I think the last time mad dog watched a college football game was like probably mid nineties. And I'm basing that entirely on him saying that Eric Parsi Jr. You're, you're giving him way too much credit. Cause uh, <laughs> I, I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago about Miami and I'm pretty sure he brought up uh, Bernie Kosar. <laughs> As in like a current sense or they can get back to that because that's what, what are we talking? 35. Yeah. At least 35 years ago. With Gino Toretta. Gino Toretta was 92. I mean, I, I think mad dog, not to get off on that is, is one of the most talented radio hosts in, in history. Agreed. But he, he knows the great Yankee teams, 
and he knows whatever he knows up until about 1988. When he, when you and Stephen A. and um and he, when and he are on like the the triple box on ESPN, he should like the entire time he should just be nodding. And you, we talked about it before like you're, you'll you'll nod politely and listen to what they have to say. Stephen A. I've realized has started to defer to you with some of his opinions. I've noticed that like he he will pick up on things that you say, put them in his back pocket, and save it for later because it's just the easiest thing to go at with Mad Dog. <laughs> Well, Stephen A. is, without a doubt, the greatest showman in television He's awesome. sports history. Um, but there's only so much he can know. Uh, and 95% of his time uh, is dealt with the Lakers. So there's just not much time <laughs> for the rest of mankind. You guys need to start doing commercials together. You're, you're really underutilized with commercials, I think, with ESPN. I, I, I think uh, there's a lot of truth to that, but... I've done a few and they're just not much fun. Uh, they do pay well, but they're, they're not much fun. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not complaining. Uh, I've had a really good career. And if it ended today, I, I would hope that you would at least say something nice about me. I would, I'm going to say something about something nice about you right now. Last, last thing for you. Um, so this is on a very different note, the last two times that I went on with you and Oh, by the way, um, I definitely chose to go on, uh, Danny Brams uh, gave me the choice to go on with Alyssa on Monday or you on Tuesday a few weeks ago. And I was like, oh, Alyssa all day. Um, so just want to let you know that, of course. Um, so the last time, last two times I was on with you, the subject of my ex from high school came up and you had basically asked me about my worst prediction ever. And I don't know why I said in that moment, it was saying that I thought I would marry my high school girlfriend. Um, I don't think I've ever shared that on these airwaves. But uh, so when we were together at SEC Media, days. I shared the video of, of, you know, my segment on that. I'm, you know, on Facebook, stuff like that. And uh, so she saw it and she ends up digging for the previous clip wherein we talked about it more in depth and oh, my goodness. oh it gets worse or better. I'm sitting at home on a Wednesday night and it's in August before the season. She sends me a long text. She's never texted me before we dated. Uh, we, we broke up in 2008. So this, this is a long oh, time ago. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm bracing. You see that come up and you're just like, oh God, what am I in for? I thought it was going to be like, how could you discuss our relationship on SEC network? What in the world are you talking about? But it was one of the nicest, most genuine texts that I think an ex has ever sent. I, it was in complimentary of you, complimentary of the way that I spoke about her husband on, on live television, and also complimentary about the way that I spoke about my wife because we ended up with the right people, all those different things. But it was such a unique experience that you helped create by talking about my ex in peak off season four. And that's amazing. So she had good memories of her last night lonely. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. I see. So you're on, are you on the new John party album? Is, is, I am. I am. I, I listened to it today. Okay. Are we Mr. Saturday night? Are we comparing California sunrise to me? My, my favorite country album of the last 10 years, like for sure. Maybe my favorite country album ever. Absolutely love it. All right. Mr. Saturday night. Is it, is it on that level? Do you think? I, I, I'm, I'm actually not through. I, I've listened to two or three songs. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a bizarre uh, listener when I work out, uh, in terms of party, I really like, uh, heartache on the dance floor. There's just something about that song that, that resonates. And, but I, I, I'm, I'm like, I was somewhere the other day, uh, and in my mind, this last night lonely just started going around on a, on a, on a, on a 
whirl. Um, and, and I think of you, because I, I don't know anybody else. That, I, I mean, I, I realize John Party is very, uh, very successful, but you're the only guy I connect him to. You got to get him on the show. I know he doesn't have the SEC ties, but you got to, he's, he's blown up right now. I mean, he's, he's yeah, getting no, to a place I where I've had a blast meeting uh, country people because of the SEC ties. Uh, I mean, I will, I've been places where, you know, all of a sudden these guys start coming over and it's really, uh, it's really pretty bizarre. Luke Combs, I mean, just a college game day. He's got to be coming on SEC Nation, I would imagine, at some point. He's got the, We've got the, theme, he's got song. the theme song. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, one of my proudest possessions, uh, and I've got it a couple of feet away, actually, is a uh, helmet uh, that uh, Kenny Chesney uh, signed and sent to me last year after he was on our show. So, uh, um, doesn't matter because he is a Tennessee Vol, as you well know. Well, the Tennessee fans don't like to claim him anymore because he's worn every other hat in the SEC at concerts and whatnot. They claim Morgan Wall. And even Bate Manning is – Claiming Morgan Wallen over. Yeah, Kenny Morgan Wall was uh, at the game. Uh, I think Kelsey Ballerina was there. Uh, Kenny, but in fairness to Kenny, uh, deep down, he, I mean, he's from right outside of Knoxville. You, you have to do that. Uh, I mean, that, that is, that is a trademark when you're a country singer. If you're in Baton Rouge, what are you supposed to do? Come out with a, an old Miss hat on? I, I would kind of respect that, actually. If you just trolled yeah, every but, single SEC fan. SEC base. fans don't. They're, they are very retired, pr- proprietary. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Uh, Paul, this has been great. Uh, like I said, go go download John Party's latest album. We'll talk about it more in depth next time. We'll have the, the full. I can't wait to hear uh, more privately about, about this relationship because I, <laughs> I, I, I did something. Uh, that's my, my dog, by the way. But uh, the the, uh, the 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 hookups with the old, not hookups, but the connections with the old uh Flames, I think, is a great is a great theme of the podcast, and I, I may I may just you know when I move on from this, just start finding people and connecting them. However, many years later, that's hey, you're you're the love doctor. I I think there's mm-hmm. there's a market there. People people would listen. There's you know there's the Jerry Springer, there's the extreme there, but you're you're doing it in a more wholesome way to be able to reunite. Exes. I'm still trying to find the uh, young lady that dumped me a couple of months after college. So she's uh, <laughs> I've connected with most of them, but. You're, you're trying like to find her. She she can find well, you everywhere. No, I know. I'm just it, usually you 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 find uh, at some point you run into these people. She's she's the only one I'm. I still haven't heard from. So Bryce Young's dad will tap you on the shoulder, but your ex is in public. They're no. not tapping you. on I the shoulder. I hope she's happy. Listen, uh, go, I hope you had a great life. <laughs> she's listening to this right now. For sure. No hard feelings. <laughs> All this has been great. Uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk again real soon. Can't wait. Thanks, Connor. How about this one? I call it bold and brash. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and brash, second half of 2022. We can do this now that everybody has played at least six games in the mm-hmm. SEC. We can kind of do like a, I figured we'd do like a reset for individual awards and division winners. And this is prediction. So obviously, you know, the bolder, the better. We asked for these five things. And this is what I would consider to be chalk, by the way, as well. So SEC coach of the year, Josh Heupel. Right. SEC offensive player of the year, Hyden Hooker. Mm -hmm. SEC defensive player of the year, Will Anderson. SEC East winner, Georgia. SEC West winner, Bama. And I say Georgia is chalk because... Dogs are still going to be favored to win that game against Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So if they get that tiebreaker, they would have to lose two SEC games on the stretch. As much as that might 
sound frustrated and be like, how could you say that Tennessee isn't the favorite to, to win the East when it's like, well, that game is, that game is still there and exists. And again, this is just chalk. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Your boy's been saying that Tennessee is going to beat Georgia for the last four months. So, you know, where I'm coming from on that one, right. any objections to those chalk picks? Um, I'm interested by defensive player of the year and we'll get into it. Obviously I want to hear like a couple of your other picks. I feel like yeah. a lot of the guys that we talk about for defensive player of the year are on like bad defenses. Yep. And so it's like, it's hard for me to like find a second guy because it's people are pushing back. People are like calling Will Anderson a fraud after that Tennessee nah. game, which like that's touch grass, dude. If you think Will Anderson's a fraud, like if you just haven't watched football, but whatever, like I'm trying to think about like maybe another potential guy just because season isn't like, maybe it's not defensive player of the year level, even though he's still good. Um, But that would be my only thing is like, maybe we talk about a couple other guys, but personally I, I couldn't even name guys that I would put up there with Will Anderson. So I'm glad you brought that up because I had the exact same realization because I wanted to look for others. And by the way, I, Will Anderson's not the default pick. He, he's not like people are talking about the bad stats because he's only got five sacks. But the national leader has seven. So he could still lead the nation in sacks after this week. I don't think that's a crazy thought at all because I think he's going to have a really big week against Mississippi State. He's third among power five players with 10 and a half TFLs. And to be doing that against all the different looks that he sees is still really impressive, which, again, that's probably not a popular opinion after our our friend Cole Kublik pointed out. Darnell Wright was excellent in that game containing Will Anderson. Mm -hmm. So you bring up the point about there's a group of guys that are on bad teams that are really good defensive players that Mm -hmm. probably won't win the award because their teams aren't necessarily good. And if you're like, Oh, we can't give this to, we can't give defensive player of the year to a guy that's playing for a defense. That's like 70th in scoring or something like that. Right. Um, The only other two guys who don't fall into this category that I'm going to get to um, Byron young could have a case. If Tennessee goes undefeated, mm-hmm. their defense looks really good down the stretch. He's been awesome for them up front. Yep. And then AJ Finley from Ole Miss. I, I'm going to keep yep. talking him up. He has been phenomenal. He had that ridiculous interception in the Auburn game as well. But he has been kind of one of the reasons why they have been much better defensively than what I thought they were going to be under Chris Partridge. So the other guys, the guys who are on bad teams that I don't want to say like they would only be able to win this award if Will Anderson gets hurt. But that's kind of what it feels like at this point. I mean, uh, let's be honest. Derek Hall, mm-hmm. BJ Ojolari, although he would have to really go off in the second half. He missed a game he was dealing with. It was a knee injury that he was dealing with in the first part of the season, so that'd be a little bit tougher. And he had a bad targeting ejection that made him look like a, like a bad dude. So, like, Good he point. basically missed. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think he's out. Yeah. Well, wait, when was the tar- – because I'm thinking of the Allie targeting ejection against Florida State. Oh, I'm dumb, man. I get those guys confused. You're absolutely right. That was Allie Gay. See? So, uh, see? This is why I ask you stuff. But I think Ojolari had one of those uh, – he had – was it last week? I was going to say, I think he had one, but it wasn't the FSU one. Like, he's been – I believe he's been ejected, but I should know that. I shouldn't be speaking. Oh, yeah. And, and then in the – and then another guy, Derek Hall, who we were just talking about, I think it was like the first play that they, they were looking at for targeting in that game against Ole Miss last week. And it wasn't targeting at all, but I was like, oh my God, if he gets ejected mm-hmm. on the first play of this game, that would just, that would just suck. Yeah. Um, but those two guys would definitely be on, on my short list. Drew Sanders, of course, uh, Emmanuel Forbes, who we're going to continue to talk up and he's going to get a little bit more love if those interceptions are kind of at that level. But even if he isn't picking off passes, I just think what he does is so impressive in Zach Arnett's defense. And then Ventrell Miller, a guy who is the heart and soul of that Florida defense. And you could make the case. I'm not saying that he's a better player than Will Anderson, but Ventrell Miller has an argument to be made about most valuable defensive player in the SEC. I don't think that's yes, crazy at all. Because if you take him off that Florida defense, as we saw last are- year, yeah they are not good 
So again, I'm not saying that he wins the award or anything like that, but just those are the names that I would keep in mind. My guy was going to be Ford, but I was going to talk about. So that, that's good. I think he's underrated, but we've talked about him a lot. Very underrated, definitely. Um, I've got some fun facts about SEC Offensive Player of the Year. Would you like to hear them? Yes. Okay. So a lot of very interesting trends, which, by the way, I didn't I didn't realize that. So for basically the first like 70 years of individual awards, it was just SEC Player of the Year. And then in 2002, Millennials, everybody needs to get a trophy, participation trophy, of course. course. They have to split it into offensive and defensive, which should have been doing probably the whole time. And we got to give Alabama more rewards. Come on. It's got to be Bryce Young versus Will Anderson, not Bryce Young and Will Anderson. Come on now. Yes, of course. Okay, so um, the SEC had one player named SEC Player of the Year from 1933 to 2001, but then it breaks off into the offensive and defensive in 2002. So – the last SEC East player to win Offensive Player of the Year, Tebow in 2008. <laughs> that was going to be my guess, and I was going to feel like it was wrong. That's funny. That is wild. It's been 14 years since an East player won SEC. So if, if Hooker wins this year, that streak yeah. would theoretically come to an end. Six different Bama players have won SEC Offensive Player of the Year in the last eight years. So again... This is a very Bama-heavy award. Half of the total winners since 2002 are non-quarterbacks. The only non-quarterbacks to win were receivers and running backs. I don't think Brock Bowers is going to have the numbers to be able to make yeah. the case at season's end, so I think he's not necessarily on that short list. Only two receivers won the award, and they were both Bama players. Was it Cooper and um, uh, our boy that won the Heisman? Devontae Smith, yes. Devontae Smith, does. Yes. He has such a basic name, but I should remember it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Georgia, Mizzou, Mississippi State, South Carolina, Tennessee have not produced a winner. SEC Offensive Player of the Year. So they're still looking for Tennessee. Has a couple of candidates to be able to do it this year. Um, four of the six – four. okay, so this, this is interesting. Four of the first six winners didn't play in the SEC Championship but only one of the last 14 SEC Offensive Player of the Years failed to make it to the SEC Championship. And it was 2012, Johnny Manziel. Manziel. I was about to say, he is the king of not winning the division, but winning everything else. So basically, if you're talking about Offensive Player of the Year, you're probably going to have to be playing in Atlanta. That's just reality. And they hand out that award after the SEC championship. So one would think um, that's going to have a pretty big say in the way that this is decided, but who knows? Maybe Tennessee would be that 11 and one team and Hennon hooker could theoretically still have those really big numbers. If he plays well against Georgia, he could definitely have a case to be made to win the award. So to recap, we are asking for the SEC Coach of the Year, the SEC Offensive Player of the Year, SEC Defensive Player of the Year. Who wins the SEC East? Who wins the SEC West? Let's start with Chris Tapley. Chris says, Tennessee gets 10 wins. Coach of the Year should be Hypel. Taking, uh, taking us from roaming in the desert and headed to the promised land in 18 months is nothing short of a miracle considering where we were. Yep. He's going to have the case. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the chalk pick. I realize we're talking bold and brash here, but it is still the bold and brash prediction would have been saying 18 months ago. Oh, yeah. Josh Heupel is going to like saying 10 wins in the regular season feels low. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's yeah. that feels like the floor for this team is 10 and two. Right. Because you're, you're thinking that they're going to be able to 
to to have one or fewer losses in the regular season with the way that Listen, it's setting up. You right. can't come apart after a Bama loss if you beat Alabama. That's the thing about Great it. Great point. Great point, Will. People forget that. Emery says, Coach of the Year. Kirby wins Coach of the Year after defeating the October crowned national champions. Wow. 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 Uh, oh, he also says they're the World Series champions, Stanley Cup champions, champions of life, Tennessee. Emery, we said that we moved on from champions of life. On, Tennessee's man. no longer the butt of the joke. Come on. He's uh, typing like Jim Ross. I think Georgia fans are getting a little bit scared. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Emery also says, Offensive Player of the Year. Uh, co-offensive players of the year, John Mechie and Jamison Williams, because we all know what they would have done in January of this year if they were healthy. Savage. Emory came in hot today. My gosh. I will say they're being missed. Those guys look like they were very good and will be very good in the NFL. This one's even worse. Oh, boy. Defensive player of the year has to be Anthony Richardson. He does more for other teams' defenses than he has his own offense at times. Mean. We, I thought we, I thought we had a ceasefire with Anthony Richardson. I thought we did. All right, he's been better. He's been better. Okay. Who wins the East? Kentucky, with Will Levis being good enough to be the number one overall pick, how could they not win it? I love Emory. this memory. He went for it, and he finished. Of course, who wins the West? Tennessee. Beating Alabama is all they need to crown themselves anything. I hate to say this is a perfect comment because I don't want to encourage any more of these comments that are knockoffs, but this hits on so many memes. That's it's good. No serious suggestions, but a good comment nonetheless. The the Kirby winning winning coach of the year is, I mean, that is a little bit bold at this point, but then it could happen, yeah. Yeah. I mean, coach of the year in the SEC is actually if you win a national championship, that's usually if if you're on that track then usually you're going to win SEC coach of the year. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the way, like Kirby, Kirby won it last year. Saban was the year before. Uh, I think Kirby, yeah, Kirby won it in 2017, of course, as well. Even though Alabama ends up winning the national championship, but because, you know, Georgia was what it was uh, going into the playoff, winning the SEC, all those things that, that kind of makes sense. But yeah, they usually do reward greatness with the exception of like a uh, stoops in 2018 or, or something like that, where it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And Hypo would, would be in that category if, if he goes 11 and one in the regular season or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Michael dark. Michael says Kirby wins sec coach of the year because Hypo will go three and three down the stretch. That's bold. Offensive player of the year go to the, goes to the artist formerly known as AR-15. Uh, the way he plays offense is offensive. Okay. thought we – the ceasefire is back on. All right? Stop making fun of Anthony Richardson. I'm now done. You guys need to be – well, they haven't played yet. So, actually uh, – yeah. Oh, you, well, yeah. Relax Georgia, until Florida. Georgia, Florida. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah. Defensive player of the year goes to the quarterback position at Auburn, who <laughs> whoever, is behind, yeah, uh, whoever is behind center elevates the defense. He's playing that week. It's incredible to watch. And Georgia wins the East and Ole Miss wins the West. I'm tired of coming up with uh, – with, uh, we'll just leave, we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Um, do we have actual responses? I think we do. I think we do. Uh, Zachary Warden. Zach says, coach of the year is Heupel, just considering what the expectations were and where we are, uh, what he inherited and what he's doing uh, with what was a gutted roster. Yep. Hennon Hooker is player of the year. The man is a killer. He has ice in his veins and uh, other figures of speech. This has nothing to do with me being a Homer Tennessee fan, I swear. 
The West will still be Alabama because the five-star Death Star is still alive. Um, oh, five-star Death Star. I love good. that. Wow. That's really good. We're stealing that. That's ours yeah, now. Yeah, that's so, unfortunately. It's been, it's been, it's 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 our meme, brother. <laughs> to quote the great Jeremy J- I, I Jeremy Jam isn't great in Parks and Rec. His character's pretty <laughs> annoying, but I'm stealing that. That's mine now. <laughs> East will be Georgia because they actually have a pretty great O-line to complement the run game, unlike Bama, and that could spell trouble for Tennessee. Conference winner, even though you didn't ask, is Vandy. Mathematically, is Vandy? Yep, that's impossible. Impossible. (laughs) Calling out, uh, spot the lie, that's the lie right there. Mm. Poor Clark Lee. One day his prediction will come true, as we know. Peyton White says, Brian Kelly will be SEC Coach of the Year. Again, we mapped out. It's on the table. There's at least the path. Jaden Daniels, SEC Offensive Player of the Year. Uh, SEC Defensive Player of the Year, Harold Perkins, true freshman winning that award. Don't think that's ever happened. I don't think so. Um, LSU wins the East and LSU wins the Central. So maybe a touch of bias. A little bit, some would say. Maybe. I don't know. The Harold Perkins, he's good. He's really good. Maybe, maybe just a little bit of some some Bayou bias. Okay, well, yeah, we'll wait a year or two and have a Perkins. I think we had only trolling responses. I think we only have trolling. Now hold on, there is a good one in here. Rocket Sanders for offensive player of the year. Um, that's going to be interesting. I think that like Hendon Hooker obviously would need to fall off, and like I hate to be the guy who talks about this, but the last time that Tennessee won rivalry games was obviously in 2016. That was when they beat Florida and Georgia. They had losses to Alabama and A&M, two pretty mm-hmm. good teams. And they came down the stretch and lost to South Carolina and Vandy, I believe. Uh, and Florida ended up going. So, I mean, Tennessee fans know more than anybody that basically you got to put a bow on that season. You can't, you know, even if you beat your rivals, obviously they lost to Bama that year, which is a little bit different. But yeah, I think... Uh, that that it would take something wild like that, which again, the Bush Jones days are gone. This is a totally different regime, so I don't think that's going to happen. Rocket Sanders as SEC Offensive Player of the Year, it would have to be. Um, well, the, the tricky thing, of course, as we outlined, if you're not playing in Atlanta, you're probably not winning this award. Probably not. Again, mm-hmm. thirteen of the last four winners, thirteen of the last fourteen winners played in an SEC championship. Because if you just looked at it on the surface, you'd say he could follow a carry on Johnson like path mm-hmm. to the award. Carry on Johnson played for a team that won the division. Sanders would probably still have to increase his scrimmage yards per game, which is wild because he's yeah. first in the SEC. <laughs> he needs 40 carries a game to do that. <laughs> Basically. I mean, like that's that's really what we're talking about. Like the volume would have to increase even more. He's averaging 151 scrimmage yards a game. He's been yeah. really, really good. So, like, the question with him is, would he actually get that workload? Because he's ne- even in high school, he didn't get this workload. Mm-hmm. He was he was playing. He was playing. Uh, he went to Rockledge, and he went. He was playing like he switched off of playing running back because he got hurt. And then they're like, "Oh, we're going to kind of move you into this hybrid role, and you're going to play receiver for us as well." And like last year, we knew that he was in a split backfield. So he's never really, I mean, he's already at his career high. He's had any level of competitive football with 140 carries. So is he going to last an entire year? I don't necessarily know. I hope so because I love Rocket Sanders. I think he's going to have first team all SEC type season, a little bit of some Tyler Beatty type vibes to it, but he'd probably need like 2,000 scrimmage yards or something ridiculous like that to be able to 
to get there, which I think Jameer Gibbs might have a better case to get to oh, 2,000 scrimmage yards. One. I would probably give it to Gibbs over Bryce Young, considering that Bryce Young has now missed the game. Yes. And, and the Gibbs was awesome in that game. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, and I, I broke down the Gibbs case as well. By the way, this article, SaturdayDownSouth.com, breaking down the SEC Offensive Player of the Year candidates. Um, I, Gibbs is one of the five that I would, again, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday as well, but uh, like one of the guys that I think would have the case. So he would need to get to 2,000 scrimmage yards, um, and that would include playing in an SEC championship. He would need to average 182 scrimmage yards in his last six games. That sounds like a lot because it is. He's averaged 181 in his last three games. <laughs> I was about to say, sounds like about what he's doing, and it is. I mean, that, and so like if he does that, like 50 catches, he has a kickoff return touchdown. Gibbs's case, not only for SEC Offensive Player of the Year, but for the Heisman, which I wouldn't rule that out. I really would not rule that out yet if he is kind of their, their guy, and it, which I, he's not the reason they lost that game. He's absolutely not. Um, and I know that he took a lot of heat for the drop that he had on that on that key play in the last drive there. But I still think like he has an outside chance at at the award because of how unique he is and because of how versatile he is. And if Bill O'Brien's just going to be like, we're going to feed you, never say never. Again, the most effective play in that Bill O'Brien playbook, buddy. Just find a way to give it to Gibbs. Go from there. Go from there. Let him take care of the rest. Uh, Lad of the week. Oh, let me start? ask you one question real quick. Um, let me ask you one question. So, uh, all SEC quarterbacks right now, what would be your top three? Oh. I think it's only two that get it at season's end. I think we do three in the preseason and then two. Well, that's chaos. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if, if it's if we're just talking two, then it's then it's pretty obvious in my opinion that that it's then Hendon's getting the first team slot and Bryce is getting the second, which sounds weird and sounds like I'm hating on Bryce. I love Bryce. You, you know that. He's not a human being. Um, but if there is that third spot available, Will Rogers is going to have a good case. He will. Mm-hmm. And KJ missed a game. Levis missed a game. How many guys? I mean, half of the conference has started multiple quarterbacks already. So think about that too. Yeah. And it's like some of the, some of the teams who haven't started multiple quarterbacks are teams like Mizzou and Florida and South Carolina and these teams that have kind of had disappointing quarterbacks. So LSU. Like, <laughs> LSU. I'll say it. You'll have to. Yeah. I think we can count that. So you kind of look at that and you'd say, well, Rogers would be my number three guy probably. Mm-hmm. If, if that, are, and that's coming off of the bad game against Kentucky, obviously, but yeah, the top two, this could end up being just a slam dunk. No doubter. As long as those guys stay healthy. That's and running back right now, since C-Rod missed four games is pretty easily Gibbs and then rocket, right? Yeah. Those, those, I think there's going to be this, like put Gibbs at all purpose. There's going to be that movement because he catches passes. He returns. Kickoffs. Sorry, he's too good at everything. Ooh, I'm too yeah, good at football. Exactly. Oh. I'm like, give them both then. Give them both <laughs> well, because yeah. as a running back, and and I get it. You want to be able to kind of give other guys a little bit more love. And I, I you know, I've, having filled out those ballots, I kind of know what that's like. And you want to give this other guy his his shine. But those two would would be my my obvious choices, of course. And then you never rule out, don't rule out Quinshawn Judkins, man. I was about to say, I would feel a certain type of way about Gibbs if Judkins wasn't like a freshman, but Judkins going to be there. Like he has opportunities to win multiple, you know? Yeah. Somebody was saying, somebody tweeted at me like, like, man, I'm just hoping that he doesn't like go to a a better offense or something like that at the end of the year because of the transfer portal. I'm thinking to myself, like, wait a minute, who, who, 
Why? Why would you? Unless Judkins? Yeah, unless Lane for unless Lane takes the Auburn job or something like that, then then that changes the <laughs> equation, obviously. But like, if Evans goes pro and he gets to come back and play in that offense, oh man, sign me up. That's Judd- a dream because, like, we were talking about, like, right now at least, it's like a run first offense where you're not facing eight in the box. You know how yeah. rare that is in like college football history. Yeah. Like- yeah, so I think Judkins is going to be something that we talk about a lot moving forward. But could have, could definitely have a case for uh, first team All SEC at season seven. He could get that second spot, and then people move Gibbs to the All Purpose slot as well. We could see right. something, like, but then, then again, you know the way that this voting works out, people like to slight true freshmen and pretend like they're not worthy of that, which is silly. But whatever, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Okay, lad of the week, I got one, Chris Doring, mm-hmm. my buddy. <laughs> if you haven't seen. CD uh, and the clown costume that he had to wear on uh, SEC Network for losing the Florida LSU bet for the fourth consecutive year. Um, mm-hmm. Go Google it, search it. It's great. Our man, uh, he took it like a champ. Full clown makeup, the clown frown, excellent addition. Mm-hmm. Him trying to smile through that frown was so good. He's up there on SEC Network trying to interview Brian Kelly in a full mm-hmm. clown costume, <laughs> having lost this bet. Unbelievable visual. I don't know how Kelly could have possibly taken him seriously. Like CD's sitting there trying to ask him about like, oh, yeah, you really saw some maturation on Jane Daniels. And Kelly's answering this question from a dude in full clown suit. Just incredible. At least it was his own doing. Like, I feel like if that had been like because of like an Auburn bed or something, it would have been like Brian Kelly would be like, I don't have time for this. This guy yeah. had a clown costume. But it was like kind of like a reflection oh. of Brian Kelly winning, so he was cool with it. Yeah. You just get to you just get to enjoy that. Be like, all right, this is how dumb I get to look people make people look for for winning a, a pivotal game. But shout out to C D because he he owns those bets, man. I don't know how they're gonna keep one upping. Uh, this bet every single year with what he has to wear, but they do a very good job. So sooner or later, PB is going to have to lose that bet. I would think, I know you don't think that you were riding high Sunday, man. You were on a different <laughs> level. You, when you get that Florida win, I always forget this, man, you like, we get, we get peak LSU. Will we do, we really do. Well, listen, you messed up when you asked me if I was scared. You should have just simply said you were scared for me. Cause I was never scared. Anyway, so, I'll say, uh, so for my lad of the week, and there are a ton in the University of Tennessee, you can go through, you want to look up Tennessee, it could be Peyton Manning, it could be any number of lads, students, professors, you know, whoever. I want to choose the president of Tennessee. Um, now, he had, have you seen this video, Connor? I haven't. Oh, man. So there are so many a, videos from Tennessee yes, that came out over the weekend. Exactly. So there's a video. I love a good social media like cut video, like where it cuts perfectly. And it starts off, it's a video. It starts off of the a video from a box of the crowd storming. And it cuts, it, it pans over. The guy holding the phone pans over to the left. And it's the Tennessee president. And he's holding a cigar after the win. And they said, hey, how much is that going to cost? And he goes, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that right there, that is land of the week stuff. Like, like exactly what we're talking about, Brian Kelly, my your own kind of thing him sitting there in that box you know first one in 15 years holding a cigar thinking and you saw they put the gofundme up on their on their uh twitter page right i it's mean like, which again like that, that 
it's not really for that. It's, it's not really donations. for that. It's to get donations. Yeah. Yeah. It's for, that. you know, practice facilities and stuff. It's yeah. an even bigger brain move than that. But point being, it's cool to just watch. It's just like, dude, if you told me we could beat Alabama and I would have to pay for a new goalpost and this will get chucked into the river and cause all kinds of potential liability, I'll take it every time, bro. Let's just play on like a, a stack of goalposts at the bottom of that river. <laughs> there are so few moments in life in which we get to go celebrate and just say, screw it. It costs what it costs to quote mm-hmm. the great Jan Levinson Gould. It costs what it costs. <laughs> and sometimes you just got to soak in that moment and just realize, yeah, it might suck a little bit, but I'm not going to worry about any of that right now. And you know how hard that is for somebody like me, who's mm-hmm. always kind of trying to process that. But there, when you get those moments, man, you soak them in, you just say, I don't care. Whatever. We'll deal with this. another time. I, I can't tell you the last time I had a moment like that. Maybe, you know what? It was definitely on our honeymoon. It costs mm-hmm. what it costs. I'm going to enjoy this. I don't care. The bill is what it is. We're going to enjoy the crap out of this. Yeah, we've talked about kind of like, I guess the closest you can get to a sports championship as a fan, other than your sports winning championships, I'd still put this above, is like getting married, going on your honeymoon. It's like, that's kind of, I hate to say the championship of life, but it's like, if you're with somebody that you love and you want to be with forever and you didn't make a jerk of yourself at the wedding and you get to land the plane, you just go, all right, now I'm going to celebrate and I don't have to worry about, you know, my aunt and uncle and everybody, you know? Yep. It's a, it's a beautiful moment. And if you, if you get it, you enjoy it, you soak it in. Tennessee got it. Uh, Tennessee got married to winning for the first time in a very long time. And boy, uh, did they have quite the after party. Unbelievable stuff. Okay, Sunday, we'll have a little bit of a different type of show. We're going to, because we have a lighter slate, we're going to have Patrick Willis join us Mm -hmm. on Sunday. So look forward to that. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name, Red On Air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. Talk soon.